0: Coming up on our hella confusing 20s. And the way that I think is better is to not be like, wow, I'm doing this for all the white and Filipino kids so they can see that white and Filipino kids can do it too. You know, wow, we're in the media and there's people that look like us and you can follow your dreams. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here with that stupid shit. And there's people that will live and die and never grapple with ideas as lofty as these, right? If you've actually made it to this part of the podcast, we're of the same tribe. Wow. Here we go, huh? Here we go. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Like fucking Dak Shepard on Armchair Expert. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That's how that motherfucker starts off every podcast. Bro. Bro. That's fine. I think that's great. That's what the listeners want to hear. I'm not one of those regular listeners. More power to you. Anyway, what a weird way to start this podcast, huh? <laughs> here we go. Come with me. There's a world outside in a rocket here I forget the lyrics let's fly um welcome to orhella confusing 20s this is an episode i don't know what episode number it is it doesn't matter it doesn't even matter because you know what numbers are just made up by humankind i was thinking about that the other day where it's like well okay i'll get into nietzsche and i guess more kind of uh metaphysical ideas later on but I mean I guess this is already kind of a metaphysical start but just thinking about how okay you can say that math is a real concept because we can use the formulas and we can use measurements to predict real things in our perceptual world but the thing is we're using things that we've made up to lead to solutions that are also in this realm of you know of things that we've created right like for example two is just a number that we made up like the that we have different words for the concept of two things but that's not like it's not like the idea of two just exists in the world independently like what what is that to have an object and another object like it's really fucking crazy to think about. Like, what is the essence of that thing in and of itself? We don't really know. We've just chosen to, you know, there's a kind of through line through all human beings and what we perceive. And so we're able to perceive numbers. We're able to perceive, okay, that's that's two of this thing once you're taught that. And it's just the strangest the strangest thing anyway our hella confusing 20s the podcast where i talk about acting and stuff and art and all this stuff that i find just fucking so interesting and fascinating and uh, relate that to the the chaos the hectic energy the shapeless amorphous mass of of your 20s of trying to figure out what you're gonna be you don't know yet but uh we're figuring it out. You know? We're figuring it out. I say that a lot on this podcast. Maybe that's my welcome, welcome, welcome. Dak Shepherds is welcome, welcome, welcome. Me, it's uh we're figuring it out here on TV 103.3. Little Lonely Hour. You're listening to Jeremy. And it's uh my playlist tonight is no songs, just ideas, just thoughts. Ha ha ha. Okay, so I've been spouting nonsense for three minutes and 49 seconds. Okay, it's not nonsense. It does make sense. But anyway, what I actually wanted to start the podcast talking about, and I guess it's about four minutes too late to start that, but I saw this quote from uh, a new Disney Channel star, and she happens to be half black, half Asian. And she said some quote. It was very... uh, of the Gen Z woke CRT critical race theory kind of statement where I didn't really see any Blasians growing up and by Blasians she means mixed black and Asian in case that wasn't clear she says I didn't really see any Blasians growing up and so I I wanna be a Blasian on TV and for Blasian kids to look at me and think wow it's possible and this kind of thinking, this kind of speech is very, very prevalent these days. And I used to subscribe to that. I used to, you know, feel that way. Like, yes, representation, it matters to see people who look like you. Um, But I didn't think like that um, growing up. I only started to think like that when I was you know, upon reflection, indoctrinated with that idea at school when they were talking about like, oh, yeah, seeing people that look like you makes all the difference. And And for some people, I mean, that's that can be very powerful. But for me, I was thinking I was like, well, how did I feel? I never felt like, oh, I'm not seeing anybody who looks like me on screen because your appearance isn't what I thought about, right? Your um, ethnicity your race was not what I felt was the first thing to notice about somebody was not the thing that I led with and I think in general that's how children are right racism and and seeing the the differences in that way I do think for the most part right is something that's taught not something in it Um. But when I think about, you know, when I did start to see people that were half white, half Filipino on screen, like Batista, like Darren Criss, um, I think like Nicole Scherzinger, you know, it's not like I was like, oh my God, these people are my tribe. This is, they're having the career I want to have. while that's what I want to be. It wasn't like that at all. It was kind of like, oh, that's cool. Good for them. But the people who I really identified with, it was much more about their energy. It was much more about their talent. It was much more about this this kind of other, this the ne quoi, this other essence to them that is not so easily categorized under race, ethnicity, right? For example, Johnny Depp, maybe my biggest inspiration. Daniel Day-Lewis, Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix, right? Um... And I feel much more in common, I guess, with, the, with these people and much more inspired by these people. I identify with them, you know, there, there's a culture to them that feels um, like it, it just jives with my spirit, you know, in a way that none of the half-white, half-Filipino artists I've seen um, have. Or like even when I saw Deuce Bigelow, Rob Schneider's part, I think half-Filipino, yeah. It wasn't like I was like, wow, Rob Schneider, you know? It was really only like the time when I quote, unquote, appreciated it more was like I said, when I was in school, when I was kind of becoming indoctrinated to these ideas. And I was like, wow, that's a big deal. Wow, it's such a big deal. Wow, half white, half Filipino guy, that's crazy. I didn't appreciate it enough. And you know what? I'm, I've now that I've put some distance between that and I see more and more of these kinds of fucking quotes, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, it's really led me to reflect on it in a, in a more specific way again. And I, I feel like I did back in the day, except it's more, it's, a, it's, it's from a less naive place now, because I know the other ways that there are to think. And I think that one of these ways is better. And the way that I think is better is to not be like, wow, I'm doing this for all the white and Filipino kids so they can see that white and Filipino kids can do it too. You know, wow, we're in the media and there's people that look like us and you can follow your dreams. (laughs) (laughs) Get the fuck out of here with that stupid shit. Again, man, it's just so reductive. It's so reductive. You're more than just that. You're more than just your ethnicity. You're more than just your race. Come on. Come on. And I overheard this thing that Monica was watching, and somebody kind of talked about that idea. It was like a conversation about racial topics. And then there was someone who was, I guess, kind of hinting towards colorblindness. And then this guy goes, yeah, like, I get it. That's cool. Like, colorblindness, that's ideal. But that's not where we are. That's not where we are. Like, it's a destination. Like, it's a little hotel fucking punch the coordinates in on google maps we're not at colorblindness you went the wrong fucking way mate (laughs) but i mean that kind of thinking also annoys me it's like bro it's not where we are here's here's how i think of it sure there are people that are racist um no it's not everywhere it's not all the time, it's not all people, it's not always. And also the more of hypocrisy that's coming up, is it structural or is it personal? Because people are saying there's structural racism, systemic racism, yet they're saying the solution is for all white people to reflect on themselves and the ways that they are unconsciously being racist and so perpetuating white supremacy. Okay. So if that's the solution, then it's not structural. Then it's not. <laughs> oh my God, it is crazy how things, uh, how things are now. But anyway, um, so, okay. Sure, racism exists. It's not that bad, but here's the thing. If you're gonna treat people differently because of their race, you're just perpetuating the racism that you say you want stamped out, right? just don't treat people preferentially or uh negatively because of their race don't treat them like their race is the most important thing about them you know if you, and you're in your defense is oh well racists are gonna do that racists are gonna point out that this is that this person is this race so i'm gonna do it too okay you fucking moron <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I honestly feel like the IQ of the average person is remarkably low. I just, I've encountered, I mean, I've met a fair amount of people in my life and so many of them are fucking idiots or, or I've encountered a lot of very, very bright people who, I mean, it seems so cliche, but I have just encountered so many that don't have social skills that are not the best at being able to, like, interact with people and place their thoughts and use their voice and figure out the personality, you know, it really does seem like very balanced people are few and far between. But that's okay, you know. And the world, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this, and he brings up how um, The Simpsons made a great example of it with Comic Book Guy. He has a very high IQ... And intelligent people can feel like they're entitled to certain things and they become resentful because they don't get those things and they see all these dumber people um, experiencing great success, experiencing wonderful things in life. And they're like, "This should be me. I'm so smart. That should be me. But of course, that's not how the world works. You know, it doesn't reward you just because you're smart. And often smart people have a more difficult time navigating things because they're more aware of certain negativities, certain things that might drag you down. They can detach themselves from, I guess, the social fabric, the kind of spell that a lesser intellect might easily fall into, right? This kind of stupor, this kind of haze, right? Walking through life like a daydream, almost. Um, And not really, I guess, faced with uh, the harder questions. But anyway. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> Punch that into Google Maps. Where are we? Where are we? We're not there yet. It's neither here nor there, but we're not there yet. Um. Yeah. But me personally, I'm much more... I've, I've been thinking about this because I saw a clip of Glenn Lowry and he was talking about, you know, how, how black people in the States can be seen as a monolith. And he was just saying, you know, I personally, and to to clarify, Glenn Lowry is a very educated, erudite, middle-aged black man. He's a professor. He's more conservative. And um, him and John McWhorter speak on Glenn's podcast quite often, being quite vocal in their, um, let's say, discrepancies with the prevalence and the increasing prevalence of kind of CRT-based thinking. And he, uh, Glenn Lowry was saying, you know, I don't, I'm not African. I don't really have much in common. You know, my ancestors have been here in the States for so long. You know, he, he came up on, wh- what are the examples he gave? It wasn't like Plato and Descartes, but it was people like Plato and Descartes. You know, or maybe he did say Plato. But he was just talking about his education is very Western, right? The ideas of the individual um, and these these philosophies are what he, it's been the nectar that he has supped on his whole life. And I'm thinking, you know, hey, me too. I mean, I grew up watching all the media from the San Francisco Bay Area in the 90s. I read classic books in school. Right now I have, what's on my desk right here? I got Man's Search for Meaning, victor Frankl. Canary Row, John Steinbeck, motherfucker from Salinas, Friedrich Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil. I just got um, Post Office by Charles Bukowski, and I also just got in um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, Carl Jung. And I mean, I, I lo- I'm on such a kick right now of just reading the greatest fucking books. Because I saw this quote, this fucking Thoreau quote, and it was basically expressing the sentiment that you got to read all the best, all the fucking masterpieces first. Otherwise, you might not get the chance. And I was like, damn, that's such a good way to put it. I started reading Walden like fucking back in the day, and I didn't finish it. But I'll make my way back to Walden, which for context, if you don't know, was is probably the most famous book written by Thoreau about going out into the woods trying to detach from society and just kind of living on his own and in ways it was a failure in ways it was a success but it is also one of the you know enduring literary works of western civilization but I mean these are the things that excite me these are the things that gel with my identity you know I like people and our authors, like Tobias Wolff, like Raymond Carver, you know, great American short story writers and novel writers. But I just, I mean, I find the the way that they write so moving and and cool and evocative, and it captures, you know, so much nuance um, about the way that people can live. I mean, at least on this part of the world, right? Because it is so focused on the the kind of individual idiosyncrasies of very real people. I remember when I was um at junior college, I was at Chabot and Hayward, and I was taking a creative writing class with Steve Woodhams. Man, that guy is a G. Like, he was this tall, lanky guy. He kind of talked like, you know, he had like a kind of a... I don't want to be negative, you know, but he had a... What's a word that's kind of neutral but accurate? Mm. Fuck it. He had a kind of shrill, tinny voice. It had a kind of pinched, high quality to it, almost like he had inhaled just a little bit of helium and then was going to talk to you. Like, oh, no, no, no. I think he hears him that's the thing that I've read, Jeremy. Uh, you know, a little bit of the culture, a little bit of the Westerns. Um, and in his class, it really just gave me such a love of creative writing, and it just gave me, I guess, that push to really to write more actively than I had previously. You know, in high school or at Foothill. Um, and I mean, there was actually an event because uh, at the time, Tobias Wolf. Um, and for for those who don't know, who Tobias Wolf is he. Um, there's this movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio called like was it this boy's life something like that and it's based on a memoir written by tobias wolf and he also wrote a bunch of short stories and he was the head of the writing program at stanford for many years and right around when he was retiring he was having this event over in palo alto that steve woodhams tipped me off about and um i went to go see it and i just i heard him speak and he talked about being at this private boys school on the east coast and how Robert Frost had come in, the great poet Robert Frost, talking about poetry, talking about our literary tradition. And Tobias Wolff said in that moment, he really felt that it was noble, it was a worthy profession to be a writer, and he didn't look back. And I just thought that was so. And he told cool Raymond Carver stories as well, which maybe I'll tell some other time, or maybe I'll make short stories out of it or something. I don't know. Everything comes into the art somehow, huh? Comes into the output somehow. But I remember I had written this story and it was meant to kind of capture just what it feels like to be in high school and go to the movies with your friends and what different people are into at different times and some of the details of the way the movie theater looked. I think I called it like free popcorn with purchase of medium drink. And oh man, I guess I should find that story because I ended up getting it published in like the Chabot Review and what's his face, fucking Woodhams actually submitted me to like their I guess they have some kind of award thing every year at the college and I ended up getting the Frederick C. Fallon Award for fiction writing and they I got like a gift card which I bought I remember I went to like this bookstore in Hayward because that's what it was for and then I ended up getting two books I got The Shining by Stephen King and then I got his memoir on writing. And I, I ate up on writing. Such a good fucking book. Oh, to think of it, I think I might have lost it, though. In L.A. Anyway, such a good book. And, um, and then also The Shining, which I still haven't read. But I've seen the movie. <laughs> and I just remember um, when I got that award and I like wrote a silly poem. God, that was a fun time. I was really flourishing as a writer at that time, and I'm—I mean, getting back into it now after having written a bunch of screenplays. But I think I'll always do both. I'll always come back to fiction. I'll always come back to screenplay writing. It was just super cool having those kinds of those kinds of conversations. And Woodham's wife had just been published in the, in the New Yorker. Good for her short story i mean and and fucking as far as short stories go i mean getting published in the new yorker that's the fucking top of the land that's the top of the fucking land so anyway i'd written this short story free popcorn with purchase of medium drink and i think i knew betsy franco was gonna be at this tobias wolf event and betsy franco is james and dave franco's mom in case it's not familiar, because those motherfuckers are all from Palo Alto. And she's a writer, and she's a teacher over in that area. And um, I saw her and their other brother, their not-famous brother, Tom, Tom Franco, who is a painter in Berkeley, which is fucking awesome. I love that they're all just fucking artistic. But, um... <laughs> God, I was such a weird fucking fanboy at that time, you know, in the sense that... So I really wanted... To give Betsy a copy of my short story, which is so funny, cause like, what the fuck? I should have had Tobias Wolf read my story. <laughs> that would have been fucking cool to get feedback from Tobias Wolf. But anyway, I gave a printout to Betsy, and she took it, and she was like, "Oh, like I'll, I might look at it. I have no promises, you know." And she ended up emailing me like a week later, and she was like, "Hey, keep going, keep writing. Um, it it does read more, like a character description." than an actual story, and I think she was just pointing to, she didn't feel like there was so much plot I guess, of something, this happening and that happening Um, and it's funny because I fucking said that to Steve Woodhams, I was like, oh yeah I mean, I could have done that story differently you know, I I know there wasn't too much plot going on, it was kind of more like character description, and he goes, well there was much more story than you know most things I read (laughs) oh my god, he loved me he was a flatterer, he fucking flattered um. Fuck, it's just cool thinking back to like the teachers that I had who really appreciated my writing. Like Lou Clark was like that at Cal Arts. Like he fucking fucked with the screenplay that I wrote for a semester. He was like, "Here he is. Here's the guy." Ah, oh, that was a fun screenplay. That was called Helado. It was kind of like kind of Bonnie and Clyde ish, kind of John Travolta, Uma y Or even like the other couple in Pulp Fiction, the ones in the beginning and end of the movie in the diner, like Honey Bunny and whatever the hell they're called, but it's like a guy and a girl, basically just fucking living large committing crimes, fucking doing drugs, and in the end, they fucking die, um, that was fun to write, oh my god (laughs) anyway anyway you need people who like your shit, you know you need people who support that stuff um where the fuck was I going? Okay, so Betsy replied to it. That was cool. Oh yeah, I wanted to take a selfie with Betsy, Franco, and Tom. I'm so fucking weird, man. I was so fucking weird. But I'm glad I took a picture with Tobias Wolf. And I fucking got him to sign um a printout of his short story that I got. Um I mean that that I got that I printed out, Bullet in the Brain, which is a fantastic short story. It's about actually, um, basically a critic who has become so fucking cynical and kind of just an asshole and he gets involved in a um, a heist. Nah, that's kind of too big of a word. Basically a stick up at the bank when he's waiting to just, you know, get some money and the, the armed robber ends up shooting him in the head and his whole life flashes before him and he remembers when he first loved, I think it's movies, I think he's a movie critic, when he first loved movies and enjoyed movies that made him even want to be a critic in the first place and how he had become so just jaded and cynical and it's a great cautionary tale to just never forget the reason, the the love that first sets you on your journey because I think life can kind of beat you down and you can start to hate the thing that you once loved and find every reason to critique and nitpick and you know you get older you get wiser you want to seem like you know more than everybody it happens but um, yeah and then I bought his copy uh, sorry I bought his copy I bought a copy of his book Old School as well which he had just written which was uh, a fictionalized book inspired by his private school days and there's a cute little uh, like note in there You know, and he gave blessings to my work. Fuck, that's so fucking cool to think about. Every time I think, I mean, I'm sure he wrote that in so many students' fucking things. Blessings on your work. Good luck on your work. But it's just, things like that really make me feel good. You know? It really makes me feel like, hey, this is possible. It's worthwhile. It's worth doing. I'm going to keep on writing my goddamn stories. I was also thinking about so mental illness is something close to my life, right? I have loved ones very close to me that um are diagnosed with you know the things that you hear about all the time. And um I had <laughs> I'm like thinking of like how do I do this while like protecting their identities? Fuck it, man. Fuck it. Um It's sad to me when I'm around friends and family members who who say things that are just so goddamn insensitive. And it's like, wow, it's like, dude, your cousin, this, you're talking about your cousin here. Or you're talking about your brother. You're talking about this one. And it really just shows like, wow, you just maybe a lack of empathy, maybe a lack of intelligence, maybe a lack of experience. They don't understand the depths that it can go to. Cause for example, right, I have I have a cousin who has bipolar. And I have another cousin where we were just we were just talking one time. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was before we knew about his bipolarism or whatever. And I forgot what he even said after that. But it's like, what the fuck kind of phrase is that to to use to use in general, especially about a family member? Oh yeah, before we knew about his bipolarism, first of all, not even just being able to say bipolar or bipolar disorder first of all you fucked up the name of it bipolarism and the tone was so flippant and then to say or whatever like it's just no big deal like it's who cares ah fuck man that kind of stuff really gets under my skin but what are you gonna do you know people are fucking idiots and here's the thing people will always be idiots No matter how learned our society and our culture gets, no matter how accessible resources to education become, you'll always have dumb people. You'll always have mean people. You'll always have insensitive people. Tis human nature. It is simply human nature, you know? And you fucking, that's just the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. And I just wanted to bring that, I just wanted to vent about that, you know? And I guess if if you're one of those people, hey, be a little more sensitive. Just It's just because people with mental illness, man, the things that they are struggling with, I mean, I'm not even diagnosed with anything that I'm aware of. Maybe, like, some symptoms of, like, generalized anxiety, you know? But... I have a hard enough time trying to rein my emotions in, trying to keep myself from doing things that I don't want to do, that my brain leads me toward. I can't even imagine the difficulty when you do have a serious mental illness, you know, like bipolar, like schizophrenia, where you don't even know what's real. You know, like your brain literally just, the way you're perceiving the world, what's happening to your emotions is just all so 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 skewed um so have a little empathy you know maybe a little more understanding or i'll fucking come over to you and whoop your ass motherfucker i'll whoop dead ass whoop dead ass not really but i fucking hate people sometimes when they're like that um and i just fucking re for the first time in years darjeeling limited fucking Wes Anderson's movie. It's so brilliant. It's Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman as brothers. And they go on a train in India on a spiritual journey. Their dad has passed away about a year ago. They haven't talked to each other. They're distant. They don't trust each other. And they try to have an experience. And Owen Wilson doesn't tell them but he's actually planning on sorry, Francis, Owen Wilson's character he's trying to get them to their mom because their mom has just always left their whole lives and she's like in a convent in India but he doesn't tell the brothers till later on in the journey he wants to keep it a secret from them but the movie is just so good there's just so many I mean the fact that they're trying to go there and like the oldest brother is trying to make them be brothers again and have this experience but they keep on getting under each other's skin with little things, little annoyances, they don't want to be around each other, they disagree about silly things, it's like, ah, that's brotherhood in a nutshell. It's so good. It's just such a fucking great movie. There's so many great lines, there's so many things I relate to, it has so much heart to it, it's filmed wonderfully, I think it's paced wonderfully, you know, there's, there's just so many great choices that, like, connect and tie back. I love how Jason Schwartzman's character Oh my God, what's his fucking name? Of the thing Jack writes short stories. I love how uh, the brothers realize that his short stories are about them and about real life. And they go, oh, I don't like the part where I do this. And Jack keeps on defending himself like, no, th- these are fictional characters. Oh no, it's a fictional story. Because that's what all stuff is, right? If it's good, it's fiction, but it's, I mean, based on real shit that happened. And of course, you know, maybe... You're blending in real stuff. I mean, sorry, you're blending in imagination with the real stuff. I mean, just what feels truthful, right? And then um, there was a short film companion piece made with the movie. And uh, because Jack, the character of Jack, you know that he has a relationship that the brothers are not super supportive of. They think the girl's bad for him. And you learn that... uh, He recently saw her in Paris. She came to visit him just for like 24 hours. And the short film is of that encounter, the Hotel Chevalier. And Natalie Portman comes to his room and he's speaking French and he's trying to be sweet to her. And they hook up. It's, I don't know, it's weird. It's weird. Like there was was some good mood stuff happening, some fun shots, but ultimately like nothing happened. You know, so it was kind of like, well, who, I don't know. It didn't really have like a kick. It didn't really have like a strong message. It just really felt like a companion piece that if Darjeeling Limited didn't exist, I mean, that short film might really be a throwaway. But it's fun. I mean, it's fun. You film something. So I've been reading uh, Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. It's so crazy because Nietzsche is somebody... You hear so many people refer to him, right? This great intellect, this great philosopher, still referenced today. Sure, people have problems with some of his ideas, but he has so much to teach, right? Jordan Peterson loves him. I hear a bunch of motherfuckers on podcasts talk about him. But it's wild because, I I mean, even beginning to read it, I already get a sense of how few people will ever actually encounter this text directly. You know, it's very... I mean, it's not something that's easy to read. It's not something that can be understood quickly or casually. You know, another idea I love from fucking Marcus Aurelius's meditations, never be satisfied with a shallow understanding of something. But just reading Nietzsche... It's crazy that he wrote this shit in 1886, or published it, sorry, 135 years ago. And the ideas are fucking hot and heavy as ever. And there's people that will live and die and never grapple with ideas as lofty as these, right? The metaphysics that just gets at the core of kind of being and and existence in general. But I just wanted to kind of talk about some of these ideas. You know, I remember when I was, and the reason why is because I love the idea of taking things that are a little more difficult to grasp, and maybe taking the usefulness out of them, distilling it and repurposing it in a way where people, it's a little easier for somebody to understand it, somebody who might not have understood it, trying to read Nietzsche on their own. I remember um, I was doing this group project in high school, and we were over at our, our classmate Rupa's house, and she's Indian. And um, that's actually irrelevant to the story. <sighs> Fucking wokeness taking over my mind. Um, no. <laughs> but I was talking to her mom, and her mom loved Jon Stewart. And she said, you know why I love Jon Stewart? Because he can take any complex political issue and make it simple enough for anyone watching to understand. And he makes it funny. And I was like, wow, that's it. You want to take important ideas. You want to make it easy to understand. You want to make it funny. Am I necessarily making it funny on this podcast? Is it always easy to understand? Maybe not. But I'm working it out. You know? And I guarantee you this. After I talk about it here, the next time I talk about the idea, I'm going to have clarified it more. I'll be better able to communicate it. So you know what? You're in my process with me right now. You're in my process. All right, so. First idea, in certain, let's say more obedient societies, right? The way that, uh, this is actually from the introduction of the book by Michael Tanner, but the way that Michael Tanner makes it seem like what Nietzsche was getting at is that there are societies where there's a kind of social contract that if you are obedient to the rules, you will be happy. Uh, maybe these societies are more sedated, a little more docile, But in these societies, art is seen as a relief from the serious things in life, and artistic greatness is consequently diminished and quote-unquote safe. The great artist is reduced to the level of the great sportsman. But for Nietzsche, art was the epitome of seriousness and artistic greatness of a kind where the greatest risks are run. And I love that idea, that art is the heaviest most serious, most enduring thing you can do, I think, because you are striving for transcendence. You're striving to capture lightning in a bottle, something about our experience that is universal, that is deeply personal, that is worth creating something about. And, I mean, the more that you are trying to do something that is fresh, I suppose, the more that you are taking these risks. And I think that you have, the, you, I agree that you have the greatest chance for a, to make a, masterple- a masterpiece, a masterpiece, just a classic work of art. And there's also the idea that, you know, everything's been said, there's no ideas under the sun that are new, it's about how you do it, it's about, your individual processing of it. And I think that's true, right? Um, to an extent, yeah, sure, you don't wanna you know, just do the same thing over and over again. Of course, you can learn from the greats, you can take many lessons, but I think when something is great, I think it maybe it's ahead of its time, but it's never totally out of left field. It's never about something totally, because obviously something about it still has to connect and resonate over time, right? So I think it is just finding the the real meat and potatoes of our existence, of our soul, of our being, and having taken in so much or having maybe been blessed or gifted with such a singular vision from the muse, from God, from the divine, and carrying that out unflinchingly where it's, it's such a unique synthesis has occurred through your mind that the work that is created um has your your indelible stamp on it you know i think that's wonderful and something else i really like about nietzsche is that michael tanner calls him you know he's he was a connoisseur of nuance you would see two ideas that to the lay person would seem like the exact same idea or even to a, a fairly educated person you might think well what's the difference here but for nietzsche he saw all the difference And in our society today, we are seeing more black and white thinking. We are seeing more extremes, right? People trying to make it all this or all that so it's easily palatable. So they can easily just blast it out and get it in people's minds. And I mean, that's kind of the idea of a meme, right? It's very quickly communicated information. But the problem is people are you know putting a reductionistic that's not that even a word probably not people are reducing these ideas to not even their essential elements but they're just kind of shaving nuance off that is kind of crucial to a true understanding of it it's like this idea we had in we we were exposed to in vipassana right let's say reality is like a octagon a three-dimensional octagon and when you're first encountering an idea or a feeling, you might only see one side. But the more you can step back and see ev- and try to see every single side of something, that's really when you're starting to get a grasp on the reality of what that thing is, at least as fo- as, as much as is possible within human perception, you know? And it's, I mean, a fascinating idea that Nietzsche gets into, is this idea that maybe the things that we believe most foundationally, most deeply in our hearts and our minds are simply not true things. But if they are life enhancing or life preserving in some way, he kind of implies, well he doesn't really imply this, Michael Tanner kind of takes this from what Nietzsche was saying. But Michael Tanner feels like maybe he's inferring, or at least posing the question, is it sometimes better not to know? If that knowledge would destroy us, you know, or just make it much harder to live, which is, I mean, I think that can apply to a lot of things. And they say truth hurts, you know, there's only so much, but there's also other people who, who believe that the measure of a person is how much truth they can handle. Oh my God, was that Nietzsche as well? I forgot where I heard that. I heard that years ago. But the measure of a person being how much truth they can handle. But that's the thing. It's like, I don't know. It's tough. I also feel like this is a place where nuance comes in, right? Like, for example, there are people with religious beliefs that are maybe not true. But maybe their mind is fragile enough that without those beliefs, they wouldn't know how to live. They wouldn't know how to exist. I mean, God knows I went through heaps of growing pains when I first broke from this kind of strict conservative christianity that i was raised in um and i think a a weaker mind right a lesser intellect might not have been able to pick up the pieces and get out there and learn about the world and expose you know expose uh, i guess get exposure to many great ideas spiritual ideas religious ideas scientific ideas and be able to kind of piece together a, a new worldview that still gives you the strength to navigate the, the inherent suffering in life without all the baggage that the kind of more simplistic cuckoo churches tack on. But I definitely get why so many people are in those things. Because the kind of foundational comforts are necessary And if you can't create those on your own, well then you're fucked. That's another Nietzsche idea, right? God, quote unquote, like God is essential. And if you can't find God, you need to create God. And I guess, I mean, okay. In a very literal sense, I, I was created by forces beyond me. And maybe that's God, you know? I mean, I do believe in a higher power. I feel like the name is just where it gets bogged down. Because to believe in quote-unquote God can mean many different things to many different people. I definitely believe in a creator or creators, right? And I also believe in the goodness of them and the lovingness of them. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. (laughs) But I mean, Nietzsche starts to talk about philosophers, right? The, The dangers of certain philosophers and says that. They pose as having discovered their real opinions through the self-evolution of a cold, pure, divinely unperturbed dialectic, right? They claim to have a relationship with truth in and of itself. They've only used a logic or something beyond logic to distill this purity, this honesty. But in many cases, what actually happens at the bottom of it is that a prejudice, a notion, uh inspiration right generally desire of the heart sifted and made abstract and made abstract sorry i'm slurring my words it's just so late right this feeling arises within them and then they defend this feeling this prejudice this notion with reasons they seek after the event that's not how it should be true seeking You shouldn't have a goal in mind, an answer in mind. Okay, maybe a goal, truth, right? Sure. But not, you can't have the conclusion already there and be like, okay, this is what I'm going to discover. And I'm going to look up this and this and this and this and this this to discover it. You need to be open to what you find. You need to be open to having your mind dramatically, drastically altered in the face of what you perhaps discover. I mean, when you go on that journey, it's uh, hopefully there are many surprises for you. It's even it's like writing a short story, right? It's like writing a screenplay. If you don't surprise yourself, you're not going to surprise anybody else. You know, you you really have to trust that that thing that speaks through you. You know, the thing that goes through your mind, your thought process, your train of thought, your heart, the muse, the inspiration, whispered gently into your ear another idea from Nietzsche and I've heard these terms so much but I was like oh so that's really what it is but it's his whole big thing of master morality versus slave morality and in a nutshell the people he feels you know are within the blanket of master morality are people who are aware that you know they have a role to be creators of value they don't have this sense of, you know, needing to be approved by others, needing to be approved by society. There's something within them that's, you know, they know they're on to something. They know that they're right about something or that something is important and they follow it. And while I, I, I don't agree with Nietzsche's idea that values are purely created by humans, right? He didn't believe that Values were this thing that existed out in the world to be discovered um but I feel like there is something to that towards seeing yourself as a changer, as a mover, as a shaker, as somebody you know not necessarily uh, so worried about everybody liking you and wanting to suck your tatas. You know what I'm saying, and Michael Tanner also kind of was talking about another. And this is, I, I think, more of um, what he took from it, more than what Nietzsche himself said, even though, I mean, I maybe Nietzsche said this, but I just haven't read it yet. Maybe it'll come up later in the book. But there's this idea, right, that when there are people that are exceptionally great, that have made, you know, incredible contributions to the culture, to advancing the world, There's a a fear and an anxiety that arises in, let's say, lesser people, right? If you're not necessarily confident in your abilities and your own greatness, these feelings can arise and people subject these great figures to this extreme scrutiny, a level that nobody can emerge from unscathed. And they act as if these things that You know, they've discovered about this figure somehow lessens the immense impact they've had on our culture. For example, right, like people more and more these days are talking about the founding fathers. And they're like, Whoa, they own slaves. Whoa, they own slaves. And it's like, yeah, so did the fucking Romans, right? Marcus Aurelius and all those guys. So have I mean, so many people, so have, I'm sure, great African figures. There are people there are so many slaves still in the world today and so as if to say wow we can't learn anything from these people we can't take anything from these people because they were flawed hey flawed as they may have been they still have contributed much more to society and the world than you have or maybe ever will these are names that live in history you know and to say that, like, oh, well, they did it off the backs of slaves. Yeah, but not every single person who owned slaves did great things. Not every single person who owned slaves uh, remains in the history books. So many of them are forgotten, you know? So many of them did nothing worthwhile in their lives. And, I mean, this applies, it goes out so far, right? We all have our imperfections. We all have the things maybe culturally of our time that are not going to be looked on fondly by the future. But I you know, I think people are doing the best with what they have. People are imperfect and they stumble through and they do great things anyway, despite their imperfections. And I think the proper attitude to have is always to learn from that, is always to find things to appreciate from that. But it's crazy, like just like the culture, and, you know, to what extent can we distance ourselves from our culture? I mean, I'm sure these guys didn't realize how fucked it was, but that's, that was the culture, you know? And Nietzsche was somebody who knew the necessity of distancing himself from what he felt was his own wretchedly decadent culture. But he also realized the risks that are inherent in affecting that kind of separation, right? Because to detach yourself from your culture, I mean, you're so alone. Uh, you can feel like there isn't anybody who gets you. You kind of isolate yourself. And, and in a way, you're, you're doomed to a life separate from... I mean, you, you, I feel like you feel disconnected from the world, you know? And I mean, I, th- I think that ties into intelligence, like I was talking about earlier before, too. Like, if you really fully develop your intelligence for hyper-intelligent people if you develop that all the way and make your life all about that of course there's going to be a level of detachment between you and these other people and that's where you have to be careful not to become arrogant right because you might not want to talk about anything with the average person because they can't even begin to grasp the things that you find interesting but how lonely would that be and so it's like we do have to kind of find a way to appreciate the virtuous things in these in these others you know, maybe we just have these conversations with a select few people. We have different conversations with them. That's fine. That's fine. And the last Nietzschean idea that I'll, I, I'll close with, I'll close with. He realized that the greatest part of conscious thinking must still be considered among the instinctive activities. And he said, most of a philosopher's conscious thinking is secretly directed and compelled into definite channels by his instincts. Okay, he calls it instincts but that could also be a higher power, right? We don't know where our thoughts come from. We only become aware of them once they occur in our heads. And so in a way, like every great thinker, you know, (laughs) they couldn't have been anything, but every great contributor to society, it's like they only made the best decisions that they could. The things popped into their heads from God knows where they move forward. They did these things and they left the legacies that they left it's nuts to think about like for example um okay let's say i'm i'm podcasting right now for some reason podcasting seemed like the most important thing for me to do the last thing i wanted to do before i ended my day why why was that it wasn't like i was sitting around it's like oh you know what i think podcasting would be important right now i think that It's not like I weighed pros and cons, right? It's like I just kind of held possibilities in my mind. And where do those possibilities come from? I don't know. You know? Why do I like to do certain things? Why do I like to read these books or do this podcast or play Ghost of Tsushima? Right? And the books that I'm reading too. How do you decide what book you're going to read next? You know, there's there's a book that pops into my head. And sure, there's books we've been exposed to in the past. But we've all been exposed to so many books. And we all hear about all these different kinds of things. And it's weird to think about, you know, which uh, combinations of impulses and exposures and influences lead to you making the decisions that you make. You know, are we just programmed by everything we go through? I mean, it's probably not that simple, you know? So that's something we're thinking about. That's something we're thinking about is just there's something guiding your interests. And there's something that led me to, you know, be reading Beyond Good and Evil by Nietzsche. There's something that led me to be working on the screenplays I'm working on right now and the short stories. So just trust it, right? Create the work that you're meant to create. And it's really just getting out of your own way and letting it flow through you because you're just an instrument. You're just a conduit. Everything I've said, everything I've said in the past hour, I've just been a conduit for it, right? The shit just appears in my head and I just talk about it and it just goes. And that's what life is. That's what life is. Know your role. That's why you can't be mad at fucking stupid people. It's not their fault. They're stupid. Just like it's not my fault. I'm such a goddamn bloody fucking genius. I'm like Mandark with my brain power over here. Mandark and Dexter combined. Meanwhile, y'all out here fucking on that DD level. Y'all some stupid ass DDs. Now, if you're listening to me, if you've actually made it to this part of the podcast and you found the things interesting that I said, that means that we're of the same tribe, right? We... For whatever reason we think about similar things we appreciate similar things at least where we are in our lives right now and so hey thanks for getting to this part our hella confusing 20s episode whatever we're getting through it have a great night i love you for listening <laughs>